for someone to say, I am who I am and I'm not going to change. That is like one of the weakest things. The one of the weakest things for someone to say, ah, that's who I am. I'm not going to change. I think that's a coward for somebody to say that. Well, hey there. If we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Today, I get to share a conversation with you that I had with Pete Roberts. Now, Pete Roberts is the founder and now president of Origin USA. Origin started as an organization that was originally manufacturing and producing martial arts gear, but now they've kind of gotten into a wide variety of other products as well, boots, jeans, protein powder, uh, something that you may have heard of called Jocko Fuel. And the reason why Origin helps produce Jocko Fuel is because Pete Roberts, who is today's guest, over the past couple of years has become a business partner with the one and only Jocko Willink. This is such a cool conversation about organizational culture, strategy, and what it means to not just be an organization that has principles and has a vision and has values, but rather to be an organization that is based on them and refuses to allow them to be compromised upon. There's so much practical in this conversation, but there's also so much that is principally sound and strong in this conversation. And I wanted to start by talking with Pete about his vision for Origin. Yeah, the big vision ultimately is to build America's next big brand, but without compromise on 100% American-made supply chain, which I call the origin factory blockchain, which means that you can, if you, I say, Hey man, you receive your products, you know, you get a pair of jeans, right? And if you were like to follow the truck back, you're going to end up in a, in a field talking to a farmer, you know, and that's, that's kind of like that factory blockchain, that transparent, authentic, 100% dirt to shirt, field to finish, you know, fiber to fabric, seed to shelf, that, that whole, <laughs> you've got that all the one liners, man. You've got all of all them, of them <laughs> man. All of them. You know I mean? Cause I live it. I live it. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm physically living it every day and really trying to, to, to do it without compromise, not trying, we are doing it without compromise. So that's the big vision. It's something that hasn't been done in America for a hundred years. Hmm. You know, I mean, truly when you look at those old iconic American brands, they've all sold their soul mm-hmm. and they've sold their soul to the lowest bidder. Uh, and a lot of times that that just happens to be other countries on other continents. And, you know, and some of these brands have abandoned the American worker and what they stood for has become hollow. And what we're doing is we're not like we're Real people from New England, where it all started, uh, trying to trying to be the tip of the spear again and and create this renaissance of American manufacturing. So that's really what Origin is. It's a it's a it's a mindset. It's a way of thinking about the future of America and and to understand what we can do. We have to look to our past and we have to pull the good parts of the past. And a lot of that is the idea of work ethic and why calloused hands feel good and the mindset to continue buying into this idea of the American dream and that the American dream isn't dead. It's just bruised and battered. So, mm. 
That's so powerful. I mean, there's, I, I let you know, I've kind of been listening to a lot of your conversations with Jocko and there are times where I didn't watch them. I listened to them and there's times where it's like, I just get this image of you talking so passionately about it that you're like foaming at the mouth. <laughs> like It just seems like you are personally like, this is not just a vision that you think is cool. Like you are deeply invested in this thing. Why are you so personally passionate about it? Like what is the conviction for you that makes it worth it? You know, it's different levels of conviction. My my defining moment on why, you know, why why cut down a bunch of trees in your backyard and build a factory, mm. you know? And and really that came from the idea that when when I started Origin, when it was just me in my basement, which is how Origin started, I was like importing because I couldn't find anybody in Maine or in America to help make the stuff. There was no manufacturers and so I was like, well, I mean, this is what I'm going to have to do, which sucks, but I guess that's the way it's done. And it came to a point where we had gotten we had gotten ripped off. Our manufacturer just kind of ripped us off and sold some of our designs. And I, I remember getting on like a call like this, a Zoom, and he just was like, yeah, well, you know, business is business. You know, we, we do what we're going to do. And the way I interpreted that was like, you know, screw you. Like you ain't gonna get anybody else to do it, so you either use us or or you lose. And I just that was a defining moment for me to be like, got it, got it. So from that point forward, I've had this singleness of purpose to try and bring manufacturing back to my hometown, back to Maine, back to New England, and now as we've started sprouting our legs across America, you know, back to America and show people that it still can be done, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, trying to just represent that holistically across the board, you know, and and, it, and it's difficult, you know, at times, but uh, but it's worth it. It's turned me gray, but it's still worth it. <laughs> That's right. So it's important, man. I watched I watched all the all the mills and the factories close down around me. Now, I'm a I, I, are you a, what are you? Are you a Gen Xer or are you I'm a, I'm a millennial. You're millennial. Yeah, okay. I'm one of those. I'm one of those super entitled millennials that everyone talks about. Bro, my 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 uh, my like seventy percent of my workforce is millennials. Okay, so. there you go. There you go. So you get it. We're not all entitled. We're not all living no. in someone's basement. No, no. And I'm close to a millennial. I'm a seventy. I'm a seventy nine. Oh, so nice. millennial cool. started in eighty, right? Yeah, yeah. I think so. so. I'm ninety one. You're ninety one. Okay. So basically, as a Gen Xer. I feel like we got the best of both worlds. So in high school, we didn't have these digital devices. We didn't have cell phones, right? Mm. That didn't happen until like we hit college. But our grandparents were still alive and they were all the World War II. They were, the greatest generation was all still here. Yeah. And I remember I remember like my 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 grandfather, you know, he used to romanticize about working at the tanneries in Peabody, Massachusetts, right? And he, he worked at this tannery and pulling tacks out of these hides and he'd go to school with bloody hands. He'd go to football practice and he still holds the record for the longest pass at Peabody High School. You know, he still holds this record. <laughs> it's still but standing right now? It's still standing. Oh it's, my like, God. it's like 80 years. <laughs> That's insane. So, yeah, I know. It's crazy. And I, and, I, and I just, and all these stories of working in the Lowell spinning mills and in these mills in New England, I, they used to just talk about these stories. And as a kid, I was old enough to really be part of be part mm-hmm. of that. I was old enough to to learn these things firsthand from them. He used to, he told me he's like Pete when I was when I was eight, I used to sit at the corner store and talk to the vets, talk about the war. 
the Civil War vets. So it's like one person removed. So like things are things are so so close. I think for us for us Gen Xers, and I just saw this void as the Greatest Generation started to pass. Mm. I saw this void of everything they had sacrificed start to be sold away. They turned on America's war machine. They built the tanks and and the weaponry and the ships and the uniforms, and they built this stuff to go to war. And they stood for something that I could appreciate through these stories that were directly told to me. Mm. And I just thought, like, what's going to happen as our grandparents start to pass away? Like, what are what is my generation going to – we're going to feel this void because we didn't grow up on technology. We grew up building forts in the woods, you know, and doing stupid shit like that. <laughs> and And at the same time, I watched the mills and the factories shut down. You know, the footwear plants up in Maine. Maine was big footwear manufacturing. They started to shut down. Articles in the newspaper. I remember when I was 21, 22 years old, 2,000 people laid off. You know, 500 people laid off. The shirt factories, the shoe factories. And there was just this void. The communities, you know, they got depressed. A lot of welfare, drug abuse, alcoholism, substance abuse, you know, um, depression. A lot, of, a lot of suicide rate, you know, right up there. Of course, in Maine where it's cold. We have really cold winters. So it was just this massive void that like the soul of America, let's say the soul of New England was Mm. being sucked away. And I don't know if you remember, I think it was Ross Perot saying in the presidential debates, I don't remember which year you, and you'll hear, you'll hear a giant sucking sound of our, our jobs and machinery, you know, basically moving overseas. And, and, and this is one of his things, this giant sucking. And it wasn't a giant sucking sound. It was it was a slow drip. Mm. It was a, not, a noticeable slow drip from the late 90s, you know, in 20 years forward that just sucked the life out of the communities across America. You used to be able to go in every state in America and find manufacturing. Mm. We made everything, man, and we made it the best. We were the best, and we, and we gave a shit. And you know, for, for different reasons, you know, whether it be policies and electing the wrong politicians and mostly greed by both sides, they perpetuated this greedy methodology. There was one politician that said, who the hell wants to sit in front of a sewing machine? And the, the WTO came in and then NAFTA and, and they just they sold it away. So there's two things there real quick. Like, number one, I, I, I agree. It was so slow and so gradual that honestly, like yeah. someone like me, like I'm almost ashamed to say it's like I was kind of ignorant that whenever politicians every four years say, oh, we're going to bring manufacturing back to America because it's I mean, yeah, it's a sexy thing to be able to say, right? OK, well, how are you going to do sure. that? Right. But whenever they say that. I like I would hear that as like oh it's just a decision like we're just deciding like oh we want to prioritize bringing this back to America we'll stimulate it we're in, we'll incentivize it the thing that I've learned in listening to to your content and your conversations and reading more about the story of what y'all are doing is it's like no we're like millimeters away from losing it forever and it's not just yeah. this thing where you can decide to just bring it back whenever you want. It could be 100 years from now. It could be tomorrow. It's like, I mean, we're dangerously close to not being able to do what we used to be able to do. Is that a fair fair summation? Yeah, and because what it all boils down to is it boils down to knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really what it boils And that's why we're, we're so close to losing it. 
is because the old timers, like the skills, like a post-industrial revolution, like we actually, we actually stole knowledge from, you know, from, from England. We, we took knowledge. They had the, their industrial revolution first, then ours started, and then we improved upon it. A lot of folks immigrating, you know, all of our, you know, we're all a bunch of sons and daughters of immigrants. Everybody immigrated, a lot of folks through Ellis Island and, and we're all part of this machine, this this American economic um, machine, and it was all about manufacturing, man. Because prior to that, we couldn't use we couldn't use the natural resources. We didn't have the knowledge, so we would we would pack everything up and we would we would ship it overseas, and they would make the goods and they would ship it back to the colonies, you know, and back mm-hmm. to the Americas. And and there's a lot of polarizing shit you know, that, that happened as, as this was being built. So, you know, when it came right down to it, we didn't know how to, how to spin and weave fabric. We didn't know how to tan leather and make footwear. And once America separated, we actually went and found the knowledge and it was espionage is how it first got here. (laughs) It was, it was actually espionage because we weren't allowed to have the knowledge. We weren't allowed. We were only allowed to make and send raw materials. So back in the day, they put out a, um, basically, if you can bring the technology to the Americans, you know, there was basically rewards to be able to do that. I think we need to get back to some of that where it's like, I think we often forget that like, man, founding fathers, like the people that built this country, they're savages. Yes, that's the right word. And it's like, there's something in that though that's really important. Like there was a purpose behind the savagery, I think, that is like, we maybe need some of that again. Like they had a little bit of swagger about them to be like, I dare you to tell us no. I dare you to tell us we can't do something. 100%. And and I I buy into that idea. There was a <laughs> there was a quote I wish I could remember it was um like a bird of prey perched on the banks of the Thames looking for mechanics and folks who hold the knowledge on how to build and make these machines. We uh, um, the new Americans went over and recruited the knowledge and the minds to come to America. That's what I'm doing now. That's what I have been doing over the past decade. And I've been going out and finding the people across America who have the knowledge to bring this back because these folks, like one of our main guys, Lenny Davis, the guy who helped pull this abandoned loom out of a mill, the last loom in Maine, and and bring this thing back to life, he passed he passed away last year. Mm. You know what I mean? Like these folks with the knowledge, they're they're not here for much longer. And if we don't capture it and pass it on to the next generation, we lose it. We lose it forever. So, you know, part of our mission has just been how, how and who and, and where, like, like, let's, let's try to pull this back together and let's try to pass the knowledge on and let's try to build the stuff that built America. You know, a lot of people are like, why do you guys make denim and boots? Cause we're building the stuff that, built America. Denim and boots mm-hmm. built America. Denim boots and calloused hands, man. So let's build that stuff again because it's the hardest stuff to make and it's the stuff we use to make the best. The only thing I could think about whenever you talk about that is my my dad uh, throughout my entire childhood and still today has worked for NASA. 
And boy, mm. you want to get my dad ticked off, be the person that doubts the fact that we went to the moon, right? Like, yeah, he's, right. you can imagine he's not a huge fan of that argument, right? That's, That's like someone right. telling y'all that genes don't exist, right? Like, it just it right. doesn't go well, right? But, no. but in response to that argument, what people always say is, okay, well, why haven't we been back? Like, if, if we went in the 60s, like, why haven't we been back? We've got all those kids. It's like, well, all of those people retired, and mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out exactly how they did what they did over 60 years ago. It's, I mean, it's just mind blowing that we like we have become so stultified that we've allowed all of these things that, like you said, built our country. It's like they're a, a relic that if we don't hold on to those things, they will go away. So what I want to ask you on that, though, Pete, is it's really easy to talk about that and commentate on how sad that is. It's a whole different story to stand up and be like, I'm not going to wait for someone else to do something. I'm going to do something. How did that happen? Well, yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It's all about like, are we going to continue talking about it? Or are we going to do something about it? That's right. That's right. You know, like, and and who, you know, like I watch Elon Musk, like that guy's good. That guy's going to go to the moon. That guy's going to go to Mars. (laughs) Yeah, We're going to colonize Mars with that guy. (laughs) You know, like that guy, like it's, he's just one, one person with a mission and a singleness of purpose that's he's not willing and he casts his wide vision for the world mm. and then he sets his goals against that which he executes on and he proves himself against that and guess what happens there's buy-in mm. and now you've expanded that brain trust and you've expanded the minds and people come back into the fold and he builds culture around that and he stands for something and he stands for it in an uncompromising way and i think that He's really someone to to really to to look at in in that respect, you know. And I don't. When did he start SpaceX? Like, what year? Do you know what year he started SpaceX? Oh, dude, I I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, it feels like it's in the past five years that it's actually become yeah. a topic of popular discussion. But I know he started Tesla years and years. I mean, like. 20, 30, whatever years ago. Was it? Yeah. And what's crazy about that is, I mean, my understanding is Tesla, SpaceX, the boring company, all of that, they are their own individual things that all yeah. support this overarching vision of we are going to colonize Mars, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. It's like, you want to talk about vision, but it's crazy how when you do something like that, like I, I know people now that have gone to work for SpaceX and they've gone to work for SpaceX because they're like, what else could you possibly be a part of? Like, and, the, and right. they're just like, of course I'm working 80 hours a week. We're trying to sustain the human race, right? Like what, like yeah. why, why would I work 40? Right. But I mean, can you speak to like, what have y'all seen practically play out with regard to the benefits of having a vision that is actually as big as what you're trying to do? Like, where does that show up as a benefit to the company in terms of who you attract and things like that? I mean, we, we attract people from, from all over the world. And I'd say that culturally, you know, we're very attractive, you know, I mean, we're, we're still, we're still a startup. Like, like, I feel like I'm getting out of bed every day to be part of a startup. Like it's my first day of work yeah. and every morning I get up, it's like, okay, today's my first day. You know, like that's how much runway, like I say, I, like I say, like something about like climbing a mountain. If we're climbing a mountain, like we got out of the car, we might've thrown our backpack on. Like, we haven't actually started doing what we're going to do. I actually remember watching, like, SpaceX get started because we were, like, 10 years, like, the origin side of stuff. I think it was, like, 2012 we started building our first factory out in the woods. And I remember everybody saying, oh, you're you're freaking crazy. You're never going to be able to bring this back. And, 
you know, and there was like one person that said, you can do this. Like you actually can do this. Like I've seen it done and I'll help you do it. And everybody else was like, you're an idiot, man. Like, what do you, (laughs) what do you think? And you'll never compete with, you'll never compete with imported products. Like what we used to make is gone. And really what it is, is people felt so abandoned that they were, they were, and they were so hurt that they were angry. It's almost like them, them manifesting like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like it can't come back is them also saying, and I'm not willing to help. Mm. You know what I mean? Like there's a direct correlation to that. And that's a, that's a, that's a mindset disease. You know, it's a disease of the mind to it's, it's and what it is, is it's hopelessness. And I think one of the worst, worst emotions a person can feel is hopelessness. Mm. And, and the idea that why can't we inject hope back in if we can, if we just like misery loves company, if you can inject hope back in and you can prove yourself and you stick to doing what you say you're going to do, you start to build community again. Yeah. Like in, 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 and not re not creating something that hasn't been done, but just leveraging what has been done and re and recreating, resurrecting it. So, so that's, you know, that's kind of how, how I, I go about it. I don't know if I answered your question or not, but no, I think it does. Um, was that vision of revitalizing manufacturing in the United States? Was that the vision from day one? Like, was that the 2012 no, vision? No, it wasn't. So when, what, what was the genesis of that and where did that start to show up? And what was the vision in 2012? 2012 was simply to say, screw you. We can make this thing in America. <laughs> That's that was it. It was it was just a naive. Maybe don't put that on the selfish. front page of your website. Screw yeah. you. But. Screw you. Like I was born in America, man. Yeah. In America, we can do anything. Yeah. Like I, I I bought into that as a kid, you know, in, in in middle school, and you know, and when they're like, you can do, you can be anybody you want to be. I was like, yeah, I want to, you know, I want to be somebody too. Yeah, but what's the alternative? What's the alternative to buying into that? Saying you can't. It's like, well, yeah, okay, so you, so you can't. Okay, so, yeah. well, you're probably right. If you say you can't, yeah. you're probably right. If you say that you can, you might be right. Like, you don't know. Right. It's like, I'd rather figure out that path. Yeah, exactly. So it wasn't the it wasn't the big idea at first. It was just to say, screw you, we're going to make this. And you can't do anything about it. And then as we started to hire, like, the first one, two, three employees, I started to see this disease of the mind that they were because these folks like the first one of the first ones was she was still in manufacturing she still works for us she was employee number two i believe jill i'm sure she won't mind me talking about her Mm -hmm. but like she had been sewing for you know 20 years at this point and and it was it was like uh the job was a burden versus it being a career it was like something she had to do versus something she she wanted to do and I saw this and I was like, man, I was like, this is more than just making jujitsu geese and, you know, like being able to say, yeah, we can do it too. Like there's a, there's a real problem with the mindset of these folks who are still in manufacturing. Hmm. And as we started to hire more and more, you know, I noticed there was a lot of, a lot of issues, you know, call it with this employee base, call it substance abuse physical abuse, 
but just a lack of purpose, hmm. a lack of a mission and, and something worth fighting for, you know, and like, you don't know what you're fighting for. And so what we did is we cast a vision of this is what we're fighting for. And you are the knights who protect the castle. And we did it slowly. We didn't ramp up fast. We found the right people, the right people to buy into the vision. We found the knights to protect the castle. And then we started to scale. And because we had this cohesive you know, mindset around who we are, what we're going to do, and how we're going to do it without compromise, that became infectious. And it's not easy. It's actually you practice culture. It's like people say, oh, we have a great culture. No, you practice having a great culture hmm. because every day you come into it, you work towards it. You self-check, you reflect, you remind yourself why you're here and and why you're doing what you're doing. And and that's important. And sometimes that does get get lost in the chaos, you know, but you always you always come back to it and constantly remind people the why. Definitely gets harder as we've scaled, but it turned into that over a very short time it turned into that, but it turned into that over time. So yeah, that's that's kind of the progression. I mean, it's interesting. Like I could see maybe someone like I think you said her name was Jill. It's like maybe there was a period where it's like she did enjoy sewing and she found meaning in sewing. But man, if you're living in a country where you have politicians on national media saying things like who in their right mind would ever want to sit behind a sewing machine and that starts mm -hmm. to become the narrative nationwide, you can start to see how maybe alcohol, drugs, depression start like could start to become a part of your reality because you start believing the message that the world is giving you. And it, yeah. it, it almost seems like what you're doing is like you're, you're reminding people like, no, your work actually really matters. And that message that the world is telling you about work is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And that that actually is the is the real pandemic is substance abuse, you know, a lack of purpose, a lack of meaning. That's the real that's the real pandemic. I mean, I can't I can probably tell you I've had three employees with either children or friends that have died over the past year from overdosing. Mm. I had a young employee who had just started training jujitsu with me that over the pandemic, like this kid was so passionate about athletics and sports. And he was a tremendous athlete. He had just started, he had just started jujitsu and he had had enough and he committed suicide. Like we, we, we deal with things like this all the time, you know, and, and it, and it, it's hard, man. It's hard, especially when you have 250 employees and we're adding another hundred employees. It's, it's hard because you actually are involved in the lives of all of these people. You know what I mean? And you're, you're, you're trying to facilitate this change, which really sometimes seems like a, a force you're never gonna you're never gonna beat but when when you find the wins in that you know and you find like when you walk in and you feel the energy and it's like a beehive and people are laughing and smiling and the music's playing like i say i take a I do, I, this is people's sanctuary mm. like this is actually where they find their value when they walk away at the end of the day and look back they say i can't 
wait to get back there tomorrow. Mm. You know, and that that is the culture that we practice building every day. And it gets tricky across one, two, three, four, five, going to be six locations in two states. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting, too, is, I mean, in the past uh, year and a half or so, because of everything with the pandemic, it's like before it was you were competing against another workplace that was offering opportunities, this talent. It's like there's there's been a season and we're still kind of in it, it seems like, where the thing that you're competing against for their paycheck is their couch, right? Like people have the opportunity to sit at home and get paid by Uncle Sam to sit and watch Netflix. And so it's like, to, like I would imagine there was a season where like literally all of your employees could have done that, right? And like- 100%. Your plants don't run if that happens, right? Like- and That could have been a very real case scenario. I remember like right- right in the midst of 2020 where there was the unknown of what this, this thing was, you know, I had, I only had one employee, only one that said, I don't need a job. She's like, she got her, her money from the government. I need a job. I got 2000 bucks in my bank account. I'm good to go. One employee out of all the employees we had took that mindset. So you can't change the minds of everybody, but, Man, if you're hitting 99, like, good to go. <laughs> I mean, Everybody, like, literally, when they're, when they're literally being told 2000 a month to sit at home, like, that's a pretty yeah. competitive offer. So what what was it that you think was in the culture of the place that made people stick around? Or were there things that you did at that time to, to make it a place that people deemed worth staying? I got the whole factory together, and I said, I said to them, we're not going to survive. We're going to thrive. We're going to use this opportunity where everybody stops working and stops making and stops building. And we're going to leverage social media and we're going to leverage everybody looking at this screen because they're home. We're going to leverage that to show them what we're doing in Maine. And you're part of that story. And we need you to tell that story to the world. And we're going to thrive and we're going to pivot and we're going to make and we're going to build and we're going to show the world what American manufacturing looks like Mm. and what the future of American manufacturing looks like. You know, I was just honest with them. Like, it's go time. Like, we aren't stopping. We're not closing the doors in the factories. Right. We're essential because we make stuff in America. We were essential before essential was a word. So (laughs) it was... It was just a, it was a mindset of I, like a bird of prey on the banks of the, of the things like we're going to win and we're going to eat all the friggin' market share we can because everybody else ain't doing it. That's right. Right. Yeah. All eyes on us. This is our time to shine. So it was really like just really thinking outside the box and finding the angles and knowing that we're a company that's so transparent with what we do on a daily basis. Like we, we show everybody the ebbs and flows of business and, you know, and our, our wins, you know, and, and our mistakes. So we're very transparent with that. We have a good following, you know, and, and so we just wanted to engage them because we know that they needed substance and they needed something real, you know, they needed something real in their lives as everybody was sitting home. So that's how I, I deployed that to the team as far as here's the plan. You know, this is how we're going to do it. This is what we're going to do. And I, and I remember saying to them, if we can do this, I said, I said, people will stick with us forever. 
like our customers who are our friends are like, they're going to be with us forever because they're going to go through this with us. Even if it's virtually, you know what I mean? You're just separated by a screen, but even if it's virtually they're they're going to go through it with us. And so they're going to be with us. And, and it, and it was awesome. And, you know, everybody, everybody kind of came together and bought into that idea and that, that long-term strategic vision for 2020. And, uh, and we ended up winning and winning big. Yeah. Which that's what's so cool. Is it, Jordan Peterson, um, are you familiar with Jordan? Mm-hmm. Big Jordan Peterson fan. One of the things that he talks about is like, man, one of the worst things you can do if you are someone that wants to take action is allow yourself to be plagued by aimlessness and anxiety. And it's like, man, yeah. if that's if that's not the pandemic, but what kind of I think of whenever you talk about what you talk to the team about there is like you provided a name. And and I think sometimes we hear the phrase vision casting and we think revenue goal, right? Like, okay, you need a three to five year revenue goal. It's like, I'm starting to see that vision casting is way more like what you talked about. It wasn't about three to five years. It was just, hey, we're going to get on to the other side of this season and we're going to thrive. But I, I think sometimes... I know I can feel this for myself, but I can observe this in other leaders that we work with as well. Like we can hear stories about guys like you doing that and you can be like, okay, well, Pete's basically Superman. Of course he said that, right? And like, we just think to like, you can think to yourself like, man, Pete just has this level of outrageous confidence that like he had zero doubts in his mind, he had zero anxiety in his mind. And he was just able to say, this is where we're going. But someone like me, I could never say something like that. Did you have questions in the back of your head, but you just overcame those and said, we're just going to move forward. Like we have to, like, what did you, what was your mindset like in all of that? You know, I, it's funny. You just said about casting the wider vision based off revenue goals. I actually, for the first time in 10 years, 45 minutes ago, cast a vision that was based off of revenue goals for our nutritional division, for, for Jocko Fuel. That's where I'm sitting right now, Jocko Fuel. Yeah. I literally was in a meeting with our team and I was like, here's, here's our revenue goals. We're, we're, t- we're actually taking on an investment right now. Wow. And, and we, need to, we need to hit revenue goals. I have never casted a vision for revenue goals. This is actually the first time I'm doing this because we've built a monster and that monster needs to be fed. And what that monster eats is cash, man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we're coming out like next year, we're coming out with a, um, a protein RTD. You know what I mean? It's like a, a pre-made protein RTD. That's and okay. we're, we're, we're going to have three, we're going to have three slots out of 10 in Wawa. And we got to make sure we make the best damn Jocko mold protein RTD on the planet. So you know, like revenue goals for our nutritional division right now are very important because we're, you know, like our, our, our new potential partner says we have a thimble size of distribution when we really need to have an ocean size of distribution. Mm-hmm. Like if we're going to bring this to the world, like, like we got a blitz scale, we got to, we got to like go. So, you know, it's a, it's a little bit different model than what I've been, what I've been saying for the past you know, 10 years, which is there's a void in the mind of America. There's a void in the hands of America. And somehow we need to course correct. That's it. We just, we just need to course correct. We need to, we need to find a way to come together to become the melting pot we used to be. Hmm. And I believe that when we made things together, 
we respected one another. Mm. We appreciated each other because folks from different cultures and backgrounds and different parts of the planet came together working in these mills and factories as a melting pot to build these durable goods that America needed. And when you strip that away, you strip away purpose and meaning. And as far as I'm I'm concerned for me, bro, like it ain't me. You know what I mean? Like, like, it's like, I got like all these people doing the work, you know what I mean? And the ones with the knowledge, the old timers that have come in to pass the knowledge on. And I have an incredible group of advisors. I mean, obviously Jocko is one of my business partners from a leadership perspective. <laughs> like not what a tremendous shabby, huh? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, what a what a tremendous asset, you know, and the reason that we aligned so well was because my I guess my idea of leading, you know, it came from athletics mm. and being around high school and college coaches and seeing how they could get the best out of players or when when they when they didn't why and so like just being a kid in sports and then also being a coach myself was there was a lot of parallels between you know Jocko's philosophies he pulled from the his military and then things I pulled from being in business the first 10 years you know, when I was 21 to, to 30, and then also from sports. And the philosophies were very similar, mm. except Jocko had like, he had a whole playbook of, you know, <laughs> words and ideas that I was like, ooh, yeah, that, wow, I'm going to, I'm going to pluck, I'm going to pluck that one. Cause that's what I've been, that's what I've been like trying to do, but I didn't have a word for it. You know, I didn't have a phrase for it. You know, there wasn't a playbook for it. It was just trying to lead by example. Right. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, and own your mistakes and be part of the team and no I in team, like all the stuff you you used to hear as a, you know, as an athlete. But then I, I, found, I had to find advisors because I hit spots where things like it just felt impossible, you know, like it was like, what the hell are we doing, man? Like, yeah. are we actually going to like the first week of manufacturing, we made five pairs of pants, you know, like five pairs of pants. Like, what are we going to do with five pairs of pants? You know, and I remember one of my advisors, you know, just saying, like, basically, like, you aren't special. Your ideas aren't special. Nobody gives a shit. And he, and he threw a, a couple of F-bombs in with that. But <laughs> basically him saying, like, nobody cares. Nobody cares what you're doing. Nobody cares what you're doing. But as a matter of fact, your idea doesn't even have to be that good. As long as you believe in that idea and you're willing to commit 10 years to it, because anything great, anything great in life takes a decade. Man, how helpful was it to have that advisor tell you that early so that you were properly setting expectations? Well, I I wish I I heard it earlier because it was this wasn't until like 2015, maybe. I mean, that's still third year of the business, though. I mean, as yeah. fa- as fast as y'all grew, I mean, I guess as fast as y'all grew, but but I mean, it's still pretty early, and and it just, I mean, even what you said towards the beginning too of like, man, like this vision is going to extend way beyond me, yeah, and it's going to. I mean, we're t- I think it's Avon Chenard at Patagonia. He he talks a lot about like, man, From we're going to make. Yeah. Oh, is he really? Dude, from Lewiston, Maine. That guy's a unique character, man. He's a unique yeah. character. And he talks about like, we're going to make decisions through the lens that we're going to be around 100 years from now. 
And I yes. just love that because it's like, you know, who's not going to be around 100 years from now? Avon Chouinard, right? Like That's he's right. not going to be. And it's but that changes something about your decision making whenever you decide to look through that lens. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. And I I mean, I I didn't know he, he had said that, but I can understand the way he grew up in Maine and Lewiston. You know, it's 45 minutes away. A similar mindset. You know, he's French, obviously. My I'm part French. My wife's French. A lot of French Canadian here. He had seen Bashu. He had seen Bates Mill. Like he was in Lewiston when these companies were were thriving. But I say, you know, and and maybe he looks at Leon Leon would be in the same way I did, because LL Bean was the man in Maine. He was the guy who developed the Maine hunting boot. Mm. You know what I mean? He he was and he was the man. I don't even know what they make in America anymore. Mm. I maybe one percent of what they what they sell. But I like to say we're building a hundred year brand. And so we're building something that transcends us. So what decisions are we going to make with that goal in mind? Hmm. What decisions? So, so shit, if I'm not going to be here, then what decisions are we going to make to set this community, to set this company, to set this workforce up? What decisions are we going to make? They're not decisions that are necessarily going to line your pocket. Now, now gaining like profit and wealth, like that is a direct byproduct, Mm. in my opinion, of doing something good. You know what I mean? And, and there can be a, there can be, there's a line between good and greed. You know, you can get the, you can get the same thing from being greedy. It's the motive. Yeah, it's the motive. But the the other cool thing about that, that long-term mindset and, and kind of thinking about things through the context of a century and not just this month or this quarter or this year is I've noticed what that does for me is it, it kind of raises this weird paradox in your mind and that it's like, man, we're talking about a hundred or 200 years today does not really matter. Like we're talking 200 years, but then at the same time, like today really matters, right? Like, because if you don't do today well, then what, who are you talking about 199 years from now, right? And, and I thought of that whenever I heard you and Jocko going back and forth on like some of the first boots y'all made. And, and it just seems like y'all have this willingness to be like, hey, we're going to create an MVP. And the MVP is not going to be like, it's not going to be the long-term thing that we want 10 years from now, but you got to start somewhere and we're going to do our best. So can you speak to like that commitment to just constantly willing like to innovate and try and create things that may not be perfect today, but but they are excellent today? Yeah, there's a... There's a um... There's a quote from the Bible that's like a thousand years as is a blink of an eye to the Lord. A thousand years yeah. as is a blink of the eye. I think about this often, <laughs> this often, often. And so like when I wake up in the morning, is my mind right? You know, is the mission right? Because if I blink, like imagine, imagine that perspective of it being like nothing. So existence relative to time is so it's so fast that's right it speeds up so much as you get older so Mm. as you get older it's like it's like things are going so so fast man i remember like a year used to be so long and now it's so short it felt so slow i guess is what i was trying to say yeah and it speeds up whenever you're doing things too like the minute you decide to start making decisions it's crazy. Yeah. That's what I've, I mean, I started this business. I left my job to start this business two years ago. 
the, yeah. two years has never gone so fast in my entire life. Exactly. And that, and that's how I feel. So like when I think of like, holy crap, if I'm going to have 80 to 100 years on this planet in a thousand years is like a blink of an eye. What real risk is there in what I'm doing? Mm. Like I see zero risk, man. Like I could, I could lose it all and live in a teepee and I'd be just as happy as I am now. Like as long as my family's happy and healthy, like, and you know, like good to go. Good to go. Mm -hmm. So when you say all the stuff you're doing, it's just like, yeah, it's just, why not? That's what I say. (laughs) Like people will go and they'll take out a $75,000 loan for a truck, but they won't go take out a $75,000 loan and bet on themselves to do something that they've always wanted to do. They are living in fear. They're scared of the unknown. Why are people so scared of the unknown? Like, where does that, where does that come from? And how do we let them know that that it's it's okay to take a risk on yourself? Yeah. You know, like it is. It's it's okay. And if you don't win, it's not failure. You simply have made a tuition payment. Cause it's not something you can learn in school and you can only learn it through experiential knowledge, through walking through life, trying things and testing things. And mm. I think what makes me different is I I guess I never had a problem with that. You know what I mean? And I guess in what I've seen as an, as an entrepreneur is I, I never, I never cared what people thought, you know what I mean? And not in like a, not in a, not in a way that's like, I'm an asshole. It's just like, Oh, cool. All right. Well, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Like I'm going to, I'm going to try it anyways. Like, like it's, it doesn't affect me. What I do appreciate is when I've seen somebody do something and then speak to me, through their experiences that that really adds value. You know what I mean? Like I, I have a few people in my life that really add value, you know, from kind of from from that that respect, like that angle there, they've done it, been there, done that, lived 10 lifetimes in 20 or 30 years and the things they've done and built. Like mm-hmm. one of them, Kip Falks, he was a co-founder of Under Armour. He says, Pete, I lived 10 lifetimes at Under Armour over 20 years. You know, like he'll, I'll spend an hour with him and I literally feel like I just, I just took like two semesters of courses in college, wow. like spending, like, you know, it's crazy. Like spend a day with him. It's like a year of college. How do you, how do you make sure you maximize that time whenever you sit down? Because it, I mean, you've mentioned advisors now for uh, quite a bit, right? And it sounds like, I mean, to a degree, like your education has come through uh, doing the thing and outside advice on how you're doing the thing. Like when you sit down with someone you deeply respect and trust, how do yeah. you how do you structure that time and what are you looking to get from them, Pete? I'm actually not looking for anything from them. Hmm. Like specifically, I'm not like I need to get something from you. Really, when I sit down with somebody, I like to like offload ideas on them, like, and then ask them for their opinion or like, hey, what am I, what am I doing wrong? You think could bite me in the future? So maybe perspective, like you're getting their yeah. eyes on what's going on. Yeah, it's like a detached perspective because I'm in the mm-hmm. trenches every day. It's like they're, you know, they can see the battlefield, but they're not just seeing the battlefield as it exists present. They have seen the battlefield in the past and they've seen where the the angles and, you know, and, and how to and how to push forward and when to retreat. 
And so basically from a detached perspective, they can give me, they can give me their opinions and advice. And, you know, actually one of my advisors, I remember before Jocko and I got together, I asked him, you know, same one that told me I wasn't special. Nobody gave a shit. John, I was, I was over at his, uh, his place and I was like, man, I don't know if I should do this, man. You know, it's saying there's this guy, you know, it's Jocko and he's this well-known Navy SEAL podcaster. And he's like, what do you got to lose? Hmm. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, giving a piece of the company away he's like what's your revenue and i was like I, it was like a million dollars or something oh, wow. and he's like <laughs> and i thought that was a lot and yeah. he was like and why are you talking to me <laughs> he goes go do the deal man stop like stop talking go do the deal like if you think that the two of you are the perfect storm like why are we having a conversation you know it's just mm-hmm. ah you know it's just a different way of a detached perspective like you haven't basically said you haven't built anything yet you know like you're playing in the sandbox like yeah. you, you you haven't done anything so so if that's the case like go do something if you think this can 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 get you further down the path and it can be really good and he's adding a creative value that you don't otherwise have like go execute on it so that kind of a that kind of perspective and i get that now from from Kip too, who's on our board of advisors that. What's the biggest thing you've learned from Kip? Do you think, is there something that stands out as like, man, his perspective (laughs) has been so helpful in this way. And what was his role at Under Armour? You said, I mean, he was a co-founder. So like, wow, really? That's amazing. Yeah. So he, uh, like he was in the he was in the basement with like him and Kevin Is Plank. It Kevin I Plank, I was about to yeah. say because they're they're up from are they from Maryland? Yeah, so Kevin was a football player, Kip was a lacrosse player. Oh, cool. So they went to school together, and then like he, you know, like he helped build the company from day one. He was he ran the company for a long time too as the chief chief operating officer. So Kevin was always the CEO, and you know, I mean, like Kip, he just looks at things. He looks at things differently, you know. Actually, his goal at Under Armour was to build it, build an empire, like an empire that was going to chase down like Nike, like that. That's like one of Under Armour's goals, right? It was like we want to, we want to chase down Nike, and that's our goal, and we'll do everything we have to do to do that. And so they're they're like, we're not going to compromise on chasing down the other big brand in the world. So what does that mean? It means there are no boundaries and no barriers to that success. Yeah, to them right. achieving to them achieving that end goal, you know, and that, and that's how they approached it. You know, my my approach is completely different because it's 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 not just about the brand and. But at least, but at least on both sides, it's like you had an approach. And I think yeah, exactly people, that's my point. That's some my people point. never choose an end zone, and they never choose their boundaries. And as like. I think there's something that's so attractive about y'all. Like, obviously, people get passionate about the idea of American made. But I also think as a byproduct, too, people get passionate about people that just stand for something. Like, stand for – I mean, because it's like – I mean, honestly, Nike just feels to me a little bit like we don't actually stand for – like, we just stand for what is culturally popular right now. And that's, you know, and Disney kind of feels the same way. And so I think it can be really good business to actually stand for something. And it also is a pretty good integrity move too. I think, I think things have changed over the past 20 years. I think, you know, fast fashion and, and, you know, movements that became brands that have now become fashion. I think it's, I think it's become ugly. I, I just think it is hollow. 
and soulless. So, you know, standing for something is going to mean something in the future where, where authenticity and how experiences and authenticity touches, touches your life is rare. When you feel it, it's going to mean something, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's where origin comes into play. The idea of origin, our origins, you know, our, our roots, who we yeah. are, the idea of that, the stories that have evaporated from the greatest generation the idea that we should keep it local, that this was handmade, that this is heritage, you know, heirloom quality that's durable, going to last forever, that you can you that you can capture that in a in a product. I think that's powerful. Mm. I think I think we're actually the best ones in the world doing it. Yeah. I don't think there's another company in the world doing it like we're doing it. And as I watch these other, there's another big denim brand that is currently abandoning America and has been for the last 20 years mm-hmm. that was part of really building America, you know, as they, as they continue getting off the path, we continue getting on the path. They're just opening up roadway, man. And we're going to reshape that roadway. That's and well, and, and there's a pretty good chance they're a publicly traded company, I would assume. There's a pretty I mean, good it's, chance. It's very respectful of you to not mention names right now, but um, yeah. you're a good sport. But it's like, well, of course they're doing instant gratification because they've got quarterly earning statements that they've got to meet up to. And it's like, man, dude, think about the century. Don't worry about yeah. this quarter. Think about this. And at the same time, you better crush this quarter to get yeah. the century. But but I don't know. It's just I think that that long game perspective is so helpful. And that's where you that's where you have to, you know, these companies end up compromising. Like they just they, they're going to they're going to compromise because they have obligations to me. And I understand, I understand that that's just not in line with who we are, or what we're doing. Yeah. Origin. So I've heard the phrase before advanced decision-making and it just seems like there's probably, cause I would assume there's been opportunities to make more money fast with regard to producing things overseas and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I mean, does this ring true? Like advanced decision-making is the idea that it's like, we've already said no before we even engage in those conversations. Is that, does that feel yeah. right to the way y'all practice? Yeah. Yeah. We've turned down Levi's to make jeans. We've turned down Adidas. We've turned down some other brands that want to leverage. I was told recently that you guys are the only ones east of the Mississippi that know how to make blue jeans. Like in quantity, you know, like not bespoke. Like you guys are the only blue jean factory left outside of L.A., that's, that has that is bonkers, and LA is basically another country as it is. So, right. so which like, is which crazy. is actually which is actually scary. Which which when you look at three hundred million Americans that on average own three pairs of jeans in Origin, Little Origin up in Maine is the only company outside of LA that knows how to that has a factory to make jeans. Like that's that's pretty wild. I mean, there's. It seems as though there's like national defense concerns there associated with the fact oh. that, like, man, if if the I, worst I've talked to, him. yeah, oh yeah, I've I mean, talked to him. The national really? defense. Okay, so yeah, they yeah. called me during the pandemic. Straight up, <laughs> this tannery in Maine is shutting down. It's there's three tanneries left in America that can make the leather for our boots. 
This is one of them. We will give you the money to keep this going, to keep this company running. If you take this company, I talked to the owner of the company, Norm Tasman. It's Tasman. He's a big, you know, cattle rancher and, you know, provides all the leather, not all of it, but a lot of it for leather, for footwear in America. And it was his, I talked to Norm Tasman about it. And Norm, Norm was just like, I've been trying to align with this little, this little town up in Maine that let's just say didn't have the right leadership in place to, to align and understand how important this tannery was in Maine and how important this tannery was to America that we have now lost a tannery. I, I couldn't, I couldn't commit to doing that when I'm trying to keep a team motivated over here to thrive during the pandemic. So our, our, all of our leather used to come out of this tannery and then we had to pivot to another tannery, but, um, but three tanneries that could make the leather now two. there's two tanneries. Like, if, if we had to turn on the war machine again and we had to make the stuff we need, I don't even know if we can. Like, I talked to the federal government about this. They put, they earmarked for a special program, factories and companies like Origin, that if needed, could you make the pants? Could you make the jackets? You know, could you make the boots for America's military? You know, because we're, we are, we're, we're definitely going to struggle if something happens and we and and we have to go to war which would be super unfortunate if we had to it's not something yeah i mean you even think i mean maybe it's a trade war right things go super sideways with china we're kind of up i mean it just seems like we're kind of up a creek and there's a lot of stuff we don't know how to do yeah and that seems like a problem but but i mean and I would imagine the fact that y'all are being about the solution to that problem, man, yes. it's probably not that hard to motivate team members uh, when you have something like that to motivate them with. And and yeah. so, so much of what you've talked about is like, man, we, we cast an audacious vision for people with regard to the type of work environment we're going to create, with regard to the quality of product we're going to create being like, man, this is going to be one of the best boots in the world, like, and, or, or the best boot in the world, right? Or, or with regard to the vision that you're chasing overall, right? You're being pretty audacious about that. And mm-hmm. you already kind of alluded to it at the beginning. There's going to be people anytime you're audacious that call you an idiot, right? Like, what are you doing? There, there's no way that's going to work. You're an idiot. And it's like, there's two ways that could go. Way one is like, no, you're a vision, an innovative visionary that's being about the business of changing the future. The secondary option is you could be an idiot, right? And let's like, this could actually be a bad idea. So how do you discern specifically, not on the overarching vision, but on your ideas of like, oh, we should try this new product line or we should take this loan or these things. How do you discern between maybe this is wise counsel and I'm being an idiot versus no, they just can't see it like I can see it and and we're going to go after this thing. The the reason I default to they can't see it, why I see it, I always default to that. Okay. And is that, did you grow up that way? Yeah. Wiring. Yeah. Yeah, it's wiring. I'm, you know, your, I mean. Were your parents like, like that? Uh, no. Okay. No, no. I mean, my my mom was pretty like, it doesn't matter, you know, what you do in life, I'll support you and, you know, and you're going to do fine in life. Like she mm-hmm. just, she just trusted the process. She had a lot mm-hmm. of faith in the process. You know, my dad, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't really around. So, you know, it's kind of like us four kids wow. up in the woods of Maine kind of, you know, taking care of ourselves really is what it boils down to. So, um, I was always just very independent, 
minded. I think it has a mixture to do with like I was an ADHD kid. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm jumping around, bouncing mm. around. The doctor told my mom, you got to put that kid on medication. She's like, no, I'm not going to put him on medication. I'm going to get him into sports. And then I, I thrived obviously in sports and, you know, I'm an, I'm an INFJ. That's my personality profile. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. So like when you, I guess when you take that personality profile of an INFJ and you mix it like a little bit with ADHD, you know, you get a, a cocktail, uh, a, a strange cocktail, you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. Cause you're introverted, you're introverted, yeah, I'm an introvert, but super all over the place, huh? Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, I, I feel like I can predict the future. you like, that's kind of my personality profile. The other thing is, is I, you always have to balance, you got to have like a mission to like balance out, you know what I mean? Like bring, bring a mission to, to something and bring harmony to something, let's just say. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a builder. I like to build things and I don't, I just, I don't buy into propaganda. I think I've always thought, like, I, I remember like I got, I got my whole family kicked out of a church we were going to when I was like 13 years old because I called bull. I've called bullshit on what what the pastor was teaching. I was like, "This is bullshit!" Like I don't even know where you're getting this from. You know, and like I like basically called them out and it, like we got we got kicked out. It was like I was that type of a kid who like like oh you're a teacher but you're teaching your opinions and your ideas and your ideals and. I can look at that and I can agree with or disagree with those things. And I respect you if you respect me and I don't respect you if you don't respect me because I'm a kid. So I was a little bit arrogant, which didn't serve me well as a kid, but Mm. does serve me well now, right? Mm. Because um, I've been able to prove i've been able to prove it out nobody believes you or trusts you until you until you prove it out. i remember going to the bank for my first loan i was 21 years old and i was going to renovate a barn and to build uh, this media company and um i remember the banker sitting across from me as a two thousand dollar loan and i'd never taken out a loan before and him just like not sure if he's going to do it and i think he didn't end up giving me the loan and I had to call my father-in-law that called his cousin, who was the president of the bank, you know, to kind of get this loan going. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm a kid and I have big and bold ideas and and you don't believe in that because I'm a kid. But but once you get past that and once you start to prove yourself, mm. um, things start to you start to get, you know, more respect for, I guess, maybe your ideas and you know, in, in the vision and, and, and that took a long time man. that, that, that took a long time to gain that confidence. It's not even respect is I have confidence in this person that they say that they're going to do what they say, or at least they're going to die trying, you know what mm. I mean? Like it, you're not just full of air, your words aren't, your words aren't empty. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, my, my arrogance as a kid for sure, you know, became, let's say confidence and then that confidence turned into maturity, mm. you know, and I, I don't really feel like I got a brain until I was like between 35 and 40. I actually, <laughs> I actually think my brain gelled. Like I, I don't think it was fully complete, 
you know, I mean, it, like it actually gelled between 35 and 40 where like I was like, whoa, I actually can look at the world as a human, you know, instead of the chaos of boyhood and, you know, in my 20s and 30s, you know, like there's a lot of chaos in your mind, a lot of big ideas, a lot of entrepreneurial seizures, you know, and it's like everything, everything kind of came together, the calmness and the confidence, you know, and then, of course, when you inject with that, going through like real, real life experiences, like loss and mm. things that change you forever. You know what I mean? When you go through those, those times that really are that pain, when you experience pain in its fullest meaning, you are also forever changed. So the, the combination of those things in my mid, mid to late 30s into 40s were heavy and and i just i just call it i just call it maturity so yeah that's and i think i think a lot of men actually you know probably go through similar things to get to that point and some people they drown it out with alcohol mm-hmm. you know and other people embrace it and they use it as fuel and motivation to course correct and do something different i think like you look at guys like jocko and jordan peterson and uh, there's a there's a bunch of great people out there that you can actually get free advice and free knowledge from. That's like right. what an amazing time to live to be able to listen to somebody and get it for freaking free, man. Like you can you can you can relate to this person, you can learn from this person, like you can absorb everything they're giving you for for free. And that's mm. that's a that's a gift. So well, and there's so much related to your story and what you're talking about that i mean those two guys have in common right like jocko and jordan's like man you're talking about some people that know some adversity right and it's like i mean i just think of that verse that talks about rejoice in all suffering because it produces perseverance and character and it sounds as though what you're saying is part of the refining process that occurred between the age of 35 and 40 was that you started to reckon with some serious adversity that made you into the man that you now are and the leader that you now are. Is that fair to say? That's exactly what it is. You know, it's you become humbled, I guess. Mm. Just, you know, you don't react, you know, you, you think a little more, you respond you know, you don't jump to conclusions. You stop with knee-jerk reactions. You don't, you don't yell, you know, as much. And if you do, you know, it's rare. You know, it's you're watching the things. You're watching how you say the things you say so that your words are meaningful and heard and listened to versus just creating noise. You mm. know, it's just all those things become tools that you can apply. I could, I could apply those tools into politics if I wanted. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of people like, Oh, you should run for governor of Maine. Like I could apply those tools in politics if I wanted to, I choose to apply those tools, you know, in, in business and in, mm-hmm. in building something special and, you know, and understanding that everybody, everybody you touch in your circle on a daily basis, you don't know what they're going through. You know, you don't know where they're coming from. You don't know if they're coming from an abusive relationship that morning. You don't know, you know, if their car broke down the night before. And so your approach has to be, you have to be aware. 
and mm. and your approach has to change from person to person and you've got to understand people i think the easiest thing to do is for for someone to say i am who i am and i'm not going to change that is like one of the weakest things the one of the weakest things for someone to say mm. ah that's who i am i'm not going to change i think that's a coward for somebody to say that yeah and I'd be like, okay, you don't want to win then. You don't want to win at life. You don't want to have authentic relationships. You don't want to grow then. That's what that tells me. You don't want to grow. You don't want to change. You don't want to improve. Like, why, why, would, you, why would you say something like that? I am who I am. I'm not going to change. That's just who I am. That's how I was born. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like how that manifests. Because it's like, it sounds to me growing up, like you, ha- you are wired, Pete, as an intense person. It just seems that way to me, right? Like you just seem to have a, but it's like, okay, well, we can see how that, that intensity, it sounds like based on some things that you're saying, probably manifest in some ways that maybe people got burned and you were yelling and you were maybe arrogant and you were a little bit brash in the way you did things. It's like the vibe that I get from you just in talking to you today, it's like, you're still intense, I, I still get a high degree of intensity. I mean, y'all wouldn't be able to do y'all wouldn't be able to do what you're doing right now at Origin if it weren't for some outrageous level of intensity. It seems like yeah. it's the way that that ma- intensity manifests itself. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I am. I'm definitely still. I'm intense. You know, I'm. I don't know if I'm in your face intense, but I try to walk through life with a purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm conscious of if my hands are in my pockets or not. You know, I hate catching myself with my hands in my pockets because your hands are in your pockets. You aren't ready to work. You aren't like you're relaxed. You're comfortable. You know, like chaos is my comfort zone. You know, my (laughs) wife, my wife thinks that I'm sick. You know, like she literally we're trying to buy this new factory. It's another 170,000 square foot facility where I get so much fulfillment. Like my like all my chemical releases thinking about making this deal. I've been, I've been negotiated for 15 hours over four days and, you know, hopefully the letter of intent is going to be done pretty soon. But like the idea of buying this factory is like winning a freaking world championship. And my wife is like, Pete, I want to puke. I want to throw up. I, I don't even know. I don't even know why you find fulfillment in this, but <laughs> yeah, you know, I get in, I get excited. going to check you that. into a clinic. That's oh, dude. I okay. get I get super stoked about it. I get intense about it. Okay, so talk to – because, I mean, there's no way you don't view – like, it would be naive to view that new factory as, oh, it's just such a perfect opportunity. There's not going to be any problems. There's not going to be any mistakes. It's just going to be a, a clear runway. I would assume you view that factory as like, oh, that is a whole mess of problems that we're going to oh, have man. to go in and figure out. So It's going to be a world of hurt. It's yeah. going to be a world of hurt. Okay, so there's something about that. So how is it that you are framing pain and hurt and failure, like short-term failure, in such a way that you get excited about it? Because there's something about the way that you think about it that feels a little different. Yeah, I mean, I I can see the end result. Like mm-hmm. I can see it. I I it's all in it's all in my head, and I can see how how chaos can come together and be so perfect. You know what I mean? Like I can see the the beauty and the potential of it, like this facility that I'm in right now, which was a 40 year old warehouse that was virtually abandoned, disgusting, now fully renovated in like a gem in our community. Like this this factory, which used to crank out 60,000 pairs of jeans a week back in the heyday of American manufacturing, 
and now might be making 100 pairs of jeans a week. I can see how I, I can be part of bringing this back to life and making something meaningful for the company, for, for origin, but also for the community, mm-hmm. also for the country. Like it's like, man, I love, I want to, ta- I want to tackle that. Like put me in the game coach. Yeah. You know what I mean? do, do you struggle with being so visionary sometimes that you forget that man, not everyone can see this as clearly as I see it, and that you just assume, oh, like everyone has a get it, like our team has a get it factor around what this is becoming, and you end up getting too far ahead of yourself just with assumptions about what you think they know. Entrepreneurial seizures, you're talking about. <laughs> okay, uh, so I've never heard that term before. What, like, what does that mean to you, or what is that from? Entrepreneurial seizure. Um, I don't know where I heard it. I didn't come up with it, but um, an entrepreneurial seizure, especially like when you've got, I guess, when you're classified as ADHD or whatever, would be like, oh, you have so many ideas, you want to do so many different things, you can't focus on one thing, so you do a bunch of different things. And not one of them is successful. They all fail, right? But an entrepreneurial seizure is when you don't, when you don't build and test the model of your idea. Mm. So like, what's the plan? What does the plan look like? And then testing that plan against, you know, people that can shoot holes in it. You know what I mean? Like, what are the, what are the holes? What are the holes in this thing? What am I not seeing? That takes maturity instead of just going and doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. So like you gotta, like when we, we bought this factory down in North Carolina, like we did a due diligence process where like we had to have three years of financials. Like I had to understand the business inside and out. It took like eight months by the time I planted the seed. Actually it was well over a year by the time I planted the seed to buy the factory. And by the time we closed the deal, an entrepreneurial seizure would have been like, Oh, I'm going to write a check and, I'm just going to buy this. I'm not, and not really like knowing what I'm getting into, yeah. you know, or like, let's honestly, honestly, starting origin, the way I started origin was an entrepreneurial like seizure. It just, it just happened that, you know, I, I, I kind of snapped around, went and remortgaged my house for a hundred thousand dollars, pulled that money out of my home and put it in the company and to capitalize the company to be able to to move forward otherwise it would have it would have died so it took me 3 years to get to the point where it that that almost bit me in the ass in a in a big way so well that's so interesting though because it's like i mean it almost got you but it was also was probably good. necessary and and what do people always say it's like man the thing that the the person that it took to start the business is rarely the person that it takes to lead the business if the business is successful. Dude, and so it's like 100%. you either have to change the person or you have to change the person, right? Like and yeah. and and so like how have you had to reinvent yourself over the course of the past now almost 10 years to consistently become the leader that Origin needs? Because I bet that person looks different than when it did in the beginning. Uh, dude, greatly. I mean, it's like I have tried to embrace learning every aspect of business because I didn't go to business school, you know, and so I had to learn it. So I've hired people that are so much better than me, you know, like we've got a finance team of four people that are all way smarter than me. We have logistics, you know, we have marketing and customer service. We have 
design and development and, you know, and production and, you know, just, we have all this, we have all this knowledge and, you know, in order to, to be a, a leader, I, I had to, I had to learn, like I spend, I spend my evenings like building spreadsheets and stuff. You know, my CFO recently told me, he's like, man, I'm going to bring you into the finance department, you know, but like learning, I'm passionate about learning all the, the parts of the business to make it a successful business. And I remember saying to one of my business partners, Brian, like, this was like five years ago, like, hey, bro, I'm going to be able to probably run a business that does like $5 million of revenue. You know, like that's probably where I'm going to max out in my skill set. You know, I was trying to like, in reflection, like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to run a business that does more than that in revenue. I just don't, I don't think I have the capacity to do it, you know, and we'll probably do a hundred million dollars next year. Jeez. You know what I mean? Dude, what I think about when you say that though, is that principle, like you can never become a master unless you're willing to look like a fool. Right. And it's yeah. like the entrepreneurs that it seems like really struggle with leveling up to becoming a leader or the leader that their company needs are the ones that aren't willing to ask for help on how to run a spreadsheet. Right. Yeah. Or or accept that someone could be way better at running a spreadsheet than they could. And they start doing everything. And then it's like, dude, that I mean, if you're good, that can maybe last you to three million dollar business. And after that, it's yeah. like you're done. You just cap done. Up. Yeah, exactly. So like, I remember thinking like, oh, I, I you know, I'm going to max, I'm going to max. But then, then I saw like, oh, I hired this person. This person's smart. I can learn a lot from this person. I can, they're like, a, they're like an in-house advisor. I can hire this person. This person's smart. I can learn about lean manufacturing from Andy. He used to run lean for Toyota. He can teach me the ways and, and you just grow and, and you learn, you know, and, and then all of a sudden you're running a, you're running a company that's doing a hundred million dollars a year. And you're like, holy shit, what just, what just happened? Oh, it's just more zeros. What's changed? Well, you've got a great team, mm -hmm. you know, the culture hasn't changed. The culture's mm -hmm. continued and you have more customers and, and, and that's it. You know, like I, I was telling, you know, I got a guy here, Joe, he's my chief revenue officer here at Jocko Fuel. And he's like, Pete, He's like, you know who's running this company? Like three balding dudes and six 24-year-olds. And he's not, he's not wrong, you know? Like yeah, he's not, he's not wrong. It's a pretty astute it's, assessment. <laughs> it is. You know, we're talking about expanding our talent pool at Jocko Fuel, you know, bringing in some other executives, bringing in some middle management, all the way down to, you know, the the shipping and warehouse team. And, you know, and it's like, wow, we've done this with three balding dudes and six 24 year olds yeah right it just shows you how capable people are oh that's so yeah that's so true and and you got to have that belief in yourself but at the same time like the person that's really screwed is the person that thinks like oh man i can run this five million dollar business i can crush a hundred million dollar business it's uh, like it it's me. almost it's almost a level of healthy paranoia to be like, oh, I don't know if I can do this because that's going to be the person that actually is hungry enough to learn how to do it, right? Yeah, I think, you know, I think that the idea of, hey, I'm a startup every day and I'm never going back. I'm never going back to the 2008, 2009 recession. Like that just crushed me, you know, like I'm never going back there. So every day I wake up, I'm going to, I'm going to be the best version of me. And I'm going to try to learn as much as I can. Like mm -hmm. I, like you have to, you know, you have to have that mindset. Mm 
And you got to have the mindset that as a startup, you have to rip people's faces off. You have got to have, you got to be dangerous. You know, like I want, I want other companies to fear us because we're coming for them. Like we're coming for them. We're coming for their market share. They are, they are not as good. They, they're not as lean. They're not as tactical. They're not as mobile. And they certainly don't have what we have. And I, and I truly believe that at the same time, I think there's somebody much smarter than me. I think they're working harder than me and I can't even see them. They're a ghost and they're behind me and they can see everything I'm doing and I can't see anything they're doing. And so you're chasing something and you're running from something. And, and, and the way you look at, the way I look at business is like, there's a beginning, a middle and an end. And in the beginning, you're like, you're learning and then there's an end. There's an end where you've gotten caught, but that middle part, like you want to extend that as much as possible, that middle, that middle where you're, you're there and, and there's people in front of you and you're chasing them. You're going to choke their asses out, but there's a ghost. There's a go. You don't know who's behind you. You don't know what's next. You don't know what's coming. And you don't know if that middle is going to be five years, 10 years, 50 years, a hundred years. So you have to wake up every day. Like it's your first day. You have to. And generationally, you've got to pass that down. Like I'm trying to pass that down to my kids. My son's in business school. You know, I hope he comes and works for the company. I hope he chooses to do that. But, you know, uh, I, I hope bet that, that message is a little bit different than what he's learning in business school right now. I just have yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. But man, I just love that though, because it seems like so much of culture today says, what is success? Success is on the beach with recurring revenue, just drinking margaritas and riding out till the sun sets. And it's like, really? You want that over this? I mean, like what you just described as extending the middle feels to me like glorious adventure. Right. It just yeah. feels like, I mean, like that just seems like a life worth living. And it's like, man, the beach and the margaritas. Yeah, it's good for a week. But as a lifestyle, no way. Uh, and, I, um, and, and I just think it hits so much into the core message of what y'all's business stands for is like work is meaningful, period. And, yeah. and I just, man, I'm so inspired by the way y'all are trying to bring that back to America. Because I think we, I mean, it's, it, the, the phrase bring it back is true. Like we've lost it in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm not one of those folks who's like, I can't wait to be on a beach, you know, looking at the ocean, sipping margaritas. Like I, bro, I feel trapped. Like if I'm on a beach, my wife wants to go hang out on the beach. I'm like, what are we doing? You know, like, why am I sitting on a beach right now? You know, so like it's that's just not my my ammo. I just I'm just not into that. But I, I think that you're right. Maybe that's been a, a little bit distorted that, you know, you've got a you've got a lot of people saying you can have passive income. I'm telling you right now, dude, there's like there's less people that make it by doing something and getting lucky whether it's in crypto or whatever else, there's less people that get lucky than make it in, into being a professional athlete. Like I bet if you look at percentages, like I'm telling you, right, you want something in life, you've got to go get that. And you're going to pay, you're going to sacrifice, you're going to turn gray and it's going to be worth it. Like that is going to be worth it. Cause man, the fulfillment that comes with it is it's unmatched. It's the, it's the best drug. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> su- like success 
and in the unknown and adventure and in in the ebbs and flows and overcoming and building something and being part of something like when you say you're still intense well that's why i'm intense because i'm jacked up about it man yeah it's like, like what I else is there you got to be intense every There's day no that's, other option. that's actually life that's actually life sedentary life isn't a thing like our bodies like the human body was not built to be sedentary like we're built to move we're built to do to lift to work like that's what we're built to do to design to come together to build you know like in and i just don't think we can lose that man and and i'm just gonna keep i'm just gonna keep trying to lead by example just like i've been doing since i've been doing since day one you know and 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 folks see that and they want to join it and we bring them in and we keep building we keep going and you know well that and that's see what was, happens yo man it's it's crazy it's happening and i know we're at time i i just have so many other questions so we may have to eventually do a part two if you'd be up for it because yeah, there's man, so sure. much i want to talk about but um, the thing that's really cool just as an observation before we do close out is it's like man we really haven't talked about origin products that much and I just know anyone listening to this right now, myself included, is like, I've got to go buy. I don't even care what it is. Like, I don't do jujitsu and I want to buy a gi now because right. it's like, because it's like I buy, I'm, I'm not buying a gi, I'm buying a vision, right? And it's like, I can't. Well, I, I haven't even thought about talking about origin products. I guess that's, that's what it, that's what the point is, is like, it hasn't even crossed my mind to tell you about the stuff we're going to make for 2022. That's like, just it hasn't a even thing. crossed my mind. That's just a it's thing. A, it's, it, it, it exists. It's a manifestation of the mindset, the product, right. like the things we need. That's just a manifestation of the mindset. Like I, I'll tell you what, if you put on a pair of origin jeans and a pair of Nikes, you're going to feel wrong. You're going to feel wrong. <laughs> yeah. Like, like those two things don't go together, man. Like if you put on a pair of origin jeans, you're going to try and find a pair of American made footwear. And you're going to try to find an American made t-shirt. Like, like the, the mindset is so, it's so, it's so meaningful and so rich. Like when you, when you're wearing the manifestation of the mindset in product form, you feel guilty for not being completely outfitted. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's why I feel that way. You know what Dude. I mean? Like, well, and, then, and, and it's like, man, when we talk about what is the leader selling, the leader is selling vision. And, and man, yeah. I hope if y'all are listening to this, like the thing that you should get from this is like what he did today for origin is what you should be doing with your team, regardless of the industry you're in is don't talk about what you're doing. Talk about why you're doing it and where you're taking it. Right. It, Cause I think that's so, so, so like we have guys in landscaping and marketing and financial services, right? We've got people that run charter schools. Those people know know what they do folks what they need to be reminded of is why they do it and where they're going that's your job to sell it to them the way pete did today so man this is huge before we go uh tell everyone where they can follow you and where they can buy some of these origin products specifically dude i don't know why i'm not drinking jocko go while we're recording this that was a miss on our part i already i already (laughs) just i could just crushed one just before the, the podcast yeah you can find you can find jocko go at uh Wawa Vitamin Shop, or you can find it on our website. So you can go to originusa.com or jockofuel.com and uh, and get on the go. And as far as as far as me personally, on Instagram, I'm Pete.origin, Pete.origin on Instagram. And then 
uh, Origin USA on Instagram at Origin USA and at Jocko Fuel on Instagram. So those are those are all ha- all of our handles. That's awesome. So we'll put the links to all of that in the show notes of this episode and. Um, and then also, uh, you've done several conversations with Jocko that will also put the oh, links yeah. to those in the show notes of this episode. Final thing before we go today, if someone's sitting down with you that's a small business owner, I want you to talk to them. Don't talk to me. Someone's sitting down with you, and it's like you can just tell they're battered down by this story or this narrative that it's like, man, like casting big vision is cheesy. You can't actually do this. Like you want to change your community. You want to like be a contribution to our nation. That's just all hogwash. That doesn't happen anymore. What do you tell that person? Yeah, I would say, I would say you're right. I'd say you're right. You're right. It is. It's not, it's not meaningful, you know, because what you think you want to do is hard. And few people are actually able to do it. So you have just removed yourself from that opportunity. You, by choice, by your own choice, you're removing yourself from that opportunity. And you have decided not to bet on yourself. You have decided not to be the designer of your future. So think about, think about that first, because the weak words because that's what they are. They're just words. Those words actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like the things you say, the words that come out of your mouth, that actually has meaning. And so if you decide that that's not what you want, stop saying it. Just stop saying it and start moving forward. Write down what you want. Write down what you want in five years and 10 years and then work backwards. And every move you make and every decision you make, make sure you're moving towards that goal. And if there's something that doesn't fit, that pulls you off the path and you'll be pulled off the path, make sure you course correct. And course correct five times a day if you have to in your decision making. But if you decide that's something you really do want, then you've gotta recognize that you are in control. You're the only one that can make the change. And ultimately, you're empowered because you live in the United States of America and no one gets to do what you get to do here. You're in a country that allows you to do these things, that you have the freedom to do these things and that there's actually no failure. There's no failure. It's all tuition payments. So the hurdles you're dealing with, that's a tuition payment. You learn, you move, you course correct, you get back on the path. So, you know, I tell them that. <laughs> that's a pretty good thing to tell him. <laughs> yeah. I tell him that. That's what I tell myself. Yeah. So well, man, uh, I, I just appreciate your time today. And, yeah, and sure. I think more than that, the work y'all do is amazing. And, uh, and we're just so grateful for the example that you're setting and, and the leadership that you and your team are providing to our country. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it. I'm so grateful to Pete for his time, for his investment, and really for the example that he's living out every single day alongside the Origin team. It's it's really a model that is worth following. One of the things that I couldn't help but thinking about with regard to Pete's story and everything that they are currently doing at Origin and the way they are just ruthlessly and relentlessly committed to American-based manufacturing is core values. One of the things that we talk about anytime we help an organization define core values is we 
ask the question once they think they've got one, are you willing to be punished because you chose to live by this thing? And that is really one of the things that is kind of a distinguishing factor between an organization that simply has some values that sit in a binder in a filing cabinet but never actually get referenced and therefore the organization doesn't actually use them and an organization that is value-based is willing to miss out on certain opportunities, um, certain business deals, certain strategic options because you're choosing to live by this value. And I just think about that line that says that if you stand for nothing, then you fall for everything. And so one of the takeaways that I hope all of us take away from this conversation is that it's worthwhile to stand for something. And it's good for you as a human being. It's good for you as a leader. It's good for the people that are following you. But more than that, it's also really, really good marketing. People love doing business with an organization that stands for something. And that is at the core of what it means to be an impact-driven leader. Y'all, we're so grateful for you for consistently listening to and sharing the podcast. If you haven't yet, please take time to rate and review the podcast, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts. I always go down and read those reviews, and that helps me know what we can do differently or what we can do more of or less of. Your comments are always so helpful. One more thing for those of you that find value in this content, every Wednesday we send an email called Worth It Wednesday. That's because I think most email isn't worth it. It's not worth your time, not worth your energy. So once a week, we try to send you at least one that is. We send a principle worth learning a question worth answering, and a recommendation worth taking. If you want to get on that email list, there's hundreds of you now, which is just awesome. You can sign up at pathforgrowth.com or by clicking the link that's in the show notes. Y'all, we're grateful for you. We're rooting for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.